Well, good evening, everybody, and uh, thank you for listening this morning. That is uh, uh, probably one of the most beautiful stories in the Bible. Maybe it sort of summarizes everything that's in the heart of God from beginning to end. Okay, so where are we? Uh, the Holy Spirit is in the process of preaching the gospel to the Gentile world. That's where we are, in a, in a nutshell. The Holy Spirit is fulfilling the imperial ambitions of Christ by penetrating the Roman army. That's what we dealt with last week. And not just anybody in the Roman army, He's penetrating the, the purebred, one of the purebred um, men in the Roman army, um, Cornelius. There's an individual whose house plays center stage, Simon the Tanner. And I think that's significant, as I said to you last week, because it's, it's, that's a unique um, situation where both the Jew and the Gentile, in a sense, is welcome. And I think that was orchestrated like that by God. Uh, Cornelius, we said last week, was a man who feared God, um, but he was neither a disciple of Jesus nor a Jew. He was somewhere in the middle, and he and Peter both had messages from heaven. Both of them experience some form of communication from heaven where God is saying, I'm going to bring you guys together. One person seeks the message and the other one is the messenger and that's Peter and Cornelius. Now Peter finds himself here in, um, in Joppa. Just to remind us on, on the map here, he finds himself in Joppa. Um, as the text says here, Philip was down here. He appeared in Azotus after baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. And then he goes and he preaches. He goes up to Caesarea. And we, we suspect that he preached in Lydda um, and, and Joppa on his way up there because the text says traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. So uh, Philip brought the first wave of the gospel, as I said previously. He came and he preached in that area. And then later on, Peter came and he came to Lydda. And then he was called to Joppa. And now he's in Joppa. And from Caesarea, um, some men are sent from Cornelius' house. So the guy that we're dealing with, he lives up in Caesarea. And tonight we're going to see how Peter now receives these guys that come from Caesarea. And he's going to travel to Caesarea to Cornelius' house. Just to bring us sort of geologically into, into place there. A few questions that tonight's lesson might touch on. First of all, do, do you, I think I've got them on the screen actually. Yes, I do. Do you share your spiritual life with your family? Your children, your brothers and sisters, your cousins, your mother and father. And have you ever? Was your spiritual life sort of a part of you that's not shared with family? Is that rain? This is a weird place, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> this is a very strange place on planet Earth. Anyways, I mean, yesterday I drove, we, we, I, I drove to Sisters and back. I saw snow next to the road. It's been deadly hot. What's wrong with the snow? It doesn't want to melt. So do you share your spiritual life with your family? Number two, are you capable of accepting something that totally contradicts what you believe to be true? Very difficult thing to do. If you have believed in something your whole life, 
Like for example, let's use an example. Who believes aliens does not exist? <laughs> Are you open to the idea that they possibly do? <laughs> and what would it take? Are you open-minded to accept what you totally believe is not true or, or, or true? Number three, how do you know if God is present where you are? How do you, how, how do you, how do you know? You know, people say, well, I know God is with me. Well, how do you know that? What evidence is there that God is with you? Um, fourthly, what does God command us to tell the world? First of all, do you believe that there is a command? And secondly, what is it? What is it? And then lastly, how do you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Does that just happen? And to, to be quite frank with you, there's great confusion about that last question in the world. People don't know how you receive the Holy Spirit. Okay, with all of that said, and I hope that you're sort of with me on the same page. If you were here last week, it should be easy for you to just fall in with what we are dealing with. If not, pray about it. All right. Acts chapter 10, verse 23 to 48. Um, just recap quickly. Um, Peter is in Joppa. Messengers came from Caesarea, from Cornelius' house, to talk to him. Okay. And they said to him, look, our master had a vision, and we want you to go back with us. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the, the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I am only a man myself. I want you to imagine this group of people leaving Joppa. You've got a bunch of Jews, or people that look like Jews, or ex-Jews, and you've got a bunch of converts disciples of Christ, you've got the apostle, and then you've got a bunch of servants, soldiers, Roman guys, walking all together in one group, which was very unique. You wouldn't see that. Where would you see that? You wouldn't see that. And they are walking about 32 miles. That's quite a distance, right? I think these guys like Paul and the apostles, I mean, these cats, they were quite fit. They had cough muscles, man. They, I, mean, they, I mean, Paul traveled the world. Can you imagine what the guy was you know, physically looking like? Now, what intrigues me here in this text is that when, 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 when I mean, they didn't have email or, or whatever. I mean, but they, he believed, Cornelius believed Peter is on his way. Simon Peter is coming. If I sent my servants, they are loyal, they're going to make it happen. And so he gets, what Cornelius does, the first thing that he does is he calls his family and his friends. And his, his close associates, his close friends. Why does he do that? Something that I've seen. To be true. When people meet Christ, now that's my experience, they immediately want to include their family members. The people they care about. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It really does make sense. Is it not reasonable to share with those we care about the most the things that means to us the most? However, I see that in a, let's call it a post-gospel age, and that's maybe where we are, in a post-gospel age, in a, maybe in a, in a post-gospel time in our lives, it, our contact with our families 
regarding spiritual things seems to dissipate over time. The longer we are Christians, the less we talk to our family members about it. I don't know. That's just an observation. People who've been in the church for a long time. I think what happens is eventually you just give up on your family members. You just give up on your friends. You don't even include. But I think that's dangerous. I think it's dangerous. I think we always need to carry the gospel with us. And especially with the family members, the people that we, we love the most. Sometimes we become desensitized to the spiritual well-being of the people that are in our biological family. And I'm preaching to myself here tonight. I can't remember when last I've had a spiritual conversation with my sister. And so when I read this, it just reminded me once again. because I've, I, And I can give you the names of the people. They get baptized. Boom, the next week, they want to have a Bible study with their mom and their dad. It's like when you meet Christ and you realize how He changes your life, the first thing you want to do is you want to share it with them. You want them to enjoy this truth as well. And then the guy becomes a Christian, and five years later, you see, he doesn't even talk to his mom about spiritual things anymore. She rejected it once, and so she just gave up on it. Um, it makes me ask the question, why is it that we don't talk to them? And, and the type of talking I'm talking about is like, just like pulling a, going for a coffee, pulling a meeting together and saying, hey, I wanted to talk to you today because I want to ask you about your spiritual life. I want to hear where you are at. We would get together with family and friends and we'd talk about a business deal. We would talk about the politics. We would talk about whatever. But how often do we ask yourself the question tonight? When last have you contacted a family member and said, can we go for coffee? Without saying what you want to talk about necessarily. And then say, look, I just want to talk to you. The reason I've called you here today is I want to talk to you about your spiritual life. Your contact with Christ. Now you can do that searching yourself. I know in my, in my world that doesn't happen often enough. That struck me. What's interesting for me is that the first thing that Cornelius does when, when Peter walks through his door, I'll probably do the same thing, is he falls on his knees. But the Greek word there actually says he worships him. If you've got the King James Version in front of you, you will see it. Cornelius falls on his knees and he worships Peter. This is crazy. A Roman centurion worships a fisherman dressed in rags. Can you picture it in your mind? Roman centurion, he's got all of his, you know, his bling on. And Peter comes through the door from the tanner's house. He was thinking before he left. He's been sweating for 32 miles. Sandals are stinky, toe jam everywhere. And the Roman centurion falls down in front of him. And he's got a whole house of people there, as you'll see in the text that, that come in. Cornelius, we might say, overdid it. But I believe that he was correct to fear God's servant and revere him. I believe, you see once again, signs of the end of time. <laughs> if strange things happen, Jesus is coming back. Here's something very important. I believe people who honor and respect God will honor and respect His servants. It will happen. If I look at this and ask the question, why did Cornelius fall down his knees in front of Peter? What do you think the reason is? 
He had no doubt in his mind that Peter was known by God. How would he know that? Because when the angel appeared to him, he mentioned Peter by name. He said, this this guy, Simon Peter, he's there by Tanner's house. The Tanner's house. He will tell you what I want you to hear. So, I mean, if you hear from heaven the name of Jack, what are you going to believe? Well, God knows this guy. He's God's guy. And if he's God's guy, I'm going to respect and I'm going to honor him. So he knew God knew Peter. And that's why he had high reverence for him. All right. Verse 27. While talking with him, they hear at the door conversing. The worship session is over. Hey, dude, I'm just a man. Peter went inside. So you can imagine they're walking in, chit-chatting, and found a large gathering of people. So there's lots of people. It's friends. It's family. You know, Cornelius got everybody together. He said to them, the speech begins. You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask what you sent? Why you sent for me? Like, why am I here? You sent for me? What, what's going on? Well, let us think for a moment how awkward this moment was for Peter. His whole life, he'd probably never eaten with a bunch of Gentiles like this in this situation, in this house setting. Some of them Romans, probably most of them Romans. And you know Jews didn't eat with such people. But now he was trapped in a house full of these guys. He doesn't know them from a bar of soap. How did he end up transitioning into becoming this type of person? Because in his previous life, he would never do this. What happened in him that he was willing to change? And that brings up the question I brought up earlier. What needs to happen for you to change in your belief system? What needs to happen? What needs to happen for you to believe that aliens exist, for example? But I'm speaking theologically here. Peter gives us the answer, I believe. The text says, God has shown me. If God shows you something, will you believe it? Even if it contradicts what you've known your whole life or what you've been taught. And that reveals some of Peter's character. That's what I love about Peter. When he saw what God showed him, he accepted it. Many people do not do that. Because you might say, yeah, well, if Jesus shows me, then of course I'd believe. Um, that's not necessarily the case. You can think of a few examples, right? What about the, uh, the Pharisees? They did not accept that Jesus was the Son of God when He raised Lazarus from the dead. They saw it. They saw people being blind and suddenly seeing. They saw the lame walk. Still, they didn't want to believe. Some people see they don't want to believe. They don't want to change, even though God shows them. That's... That's a challenge. Many people today will not change their beliefs even when God shows them clearly the truth. I remember sitting with a Jehovah Witness guy. And 
you know, they, they believe that we're going to live on this earth, like this earth is going to be, the, I feel so sad if that's the case, because this earth is a mess. There's holes dug in the ground, there's volcanoes, there's all kinds of things. And I showed in the text in Peter that says, the elements will be destroyed. It's very clear, this planet will be destroyed. Maybe we'll live on a similar planet, if you want to believe that. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, okay? But this planet is going to be destroyed. The elements will be destroyed. The planets will be destroyed. Everything will be destroyed. And I remember sitting with him, and he's reading it. He's saying it with his mouth. He says, no, I don't believe it. The, the, um, the um, Southern Baptist Convention I saw today, they voted on whether they're going to allow women preachers. Because there was a big issue. I don't know if you've ever heard of Saddleback Church. Saddleback Church is a massive church in California. Um, what's the guy? Rick Warren. Yes, Rick Warren. Thank you, brother. Rick Warren is, is I mean, the church is massive. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of people, I think it is. And um, he, he just appointed like a bunch of female preachers. And so this is why the issue arose. And so the Southern Baptist Convention then had a, had a they're going to vote like, what are they going to do now? And they voted, and they said, we're not going to have female preachers. And so they kicked out Saddleback Church. Obviously, Saddleback Church, they don't care. Rick Warren doesn't care. Because, I mean, he's made lots of money. He's got thousands of people that are in his... He doesn't need the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, isn't it annoying when politics enter, you know, the church environment? It's, it's horrible. In any case, I'm like, why are we even debating this? I mean, do I need to read the text? The text says it very clearly. God has shown us in the text. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. And he, and he, and he, and he um, underpins his argument, not with culture, because that's what they say. Well, the culture was different. No, it's not culture. He says, for, for Eve is the one that was deceived. He gives the reason. He underpins it, and he gives the reason for this based on what... Um, what happened in the garden, in the garden of, of Eden. So, even today, people look at the text and still believe what they want to believe. Where do you stand? Are you willing to change the most uncomfortable parts of what you believe if God shows you? Are you aware that you might believe in something that is actually not the truth? Are you open to that idea? Or do you believe everything I believe is true? That's challenging. Imagine how hard it is for Peter. Oh, does God really accept me if I eat pork now? That's a huge deal. He's never ate, eaten bacon in his life. That's a big deal. But he, overcome it. he overcame it quickly because he had a heart for truth. He was willing to change everything about him, including his heritage, including what his parents believed. And Israel believed for that, including what Moses said. He was willing to go against that if God shows him clearly. Um, do you love the truth enough that if God shows you otherwise that you will believe it? This is a necessary trait to have in order to grow. Discomfort stretches us. So I challenge you and me to challenge what you believe because it will strengthen your faith. All right, let's go on. Verse 30. Cornelius answered, because remember, let's just go back here for in case you've lost me. May I ask why you sent me? He's like in front of this whole group, like, why am I here? What, what's the deal? 
Cornelius answered, three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good, it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. It is common practice in many churches today, many um, Christian uh, faiths, for people to say, God told me this. Or the Lord is saying this. Or God show me that you need to do this or to do that. They call it, they call it something like, you know, I'm giving you a prophetic word. Prophecy. They talk about visions and dreams. And I've heard some of these. Let me tell you this. None can compare to this. It's such a risky thing to tell people. Well, God tells me I need to tell you this. That's very risky. And it's always vague. It's always vague. It's like, you'll be blessed. And like I said the other morning, you're going to go across the blue waters. Well, that could be a pond. It could be a river. It could be an ocean. It could be a cup. Whatever. A cup with water in it. I don't know. What, what does it mean? Why is it always so vague? Look at this. Look at the message he receives here from the angel. Look at the details. The time of the prayer, okay. What the angel looked like. The intimate details of Cornelius' religious life, right, that the angel shared with him. And here's the key details. He names Simon Peter by name. They've never met each other. There's no newspapers telling the story of Simon Peter in Jerusalem. He doesn't know the guy. This is from heaven. He doesn't know the guy. And Simon the Tanner, what about his name? Guarantee you now they've never met. And heaven gives the address. Remember we spoke about the, I mean, you want to know where the guy is? He's there by the sea, wherever that road is. Simon the Tanner, just go find him. You'll find him. And it's interesting that this vision from heaven comes with exact details. So when people go about and they give prophetic words, be very careful. Unless there's details like this, I'd be very careful to believe it. Be very careful. So I have a question. Look at that last section there. It says, now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything. Quick question. How did Cornelius know God was present? Because he seems pretty confident. We're in the presence of God right now. Well, I suspect if you do what God tells you to do, you can be guaranteed that He is present. Just, I'm just throwing that out there. Um, if an angel appears to him and says, go get Simon Peter at Tanner's house, bring him here, he's got something to tell you, and he does that, Surely you must believe God is here then, because I did what He told me to do. If you do what He tells you to do, God will be present. God orchestrated, called for this meeting from heaven. Of course He was going to be present. Now, if Cornelius chose on this day rather to go fishing, use his servants to fish with him instead of sending them to Joppa, 
I think he would find it very difficult while he's floating around in the boat fishing to claim that God is with him. No, I don't think God is with him then. I think he's rejected what God had told him to do. Numerous scriptures claim that God is present when we do his will. Second Chronicle 16 verse 9, for example, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And so God is on the lookout for people who are committed to him. And when they are committed to him, he draws closer and he strengthens them. It's throughout the Bible. What about the Great Commission? Go make disciples, baptizing, teaching them. And what does he say at the end? And I'll be with you, even until the end of the age. There's, there's a promise of proximity attached to the commission. Now, as I'm, as I'm standing here tonight, I might, I might not be able to... Oh, it's a difficult situation. But let's say, for example, tomorrow I go fishing in the woods. I might not be guaranteed that Jesus is with me, although I believe that. But you can be guaranteed 100% that if you're busy teaching somebody about Jesus... You're following the Great Commission. You can be one million percent guaranteed Jesus is right there with you because He said so. It's a promise. Now, I don't doubt that God is always with us, but you know what I mean. All right. We know God sent you. That's essentially the message that Cornelius is saying to Peter, but we don't know what He told you to tell us. We don't know the message. So they're all anticipating. Oh, we're so excited. Heaven has called you here, and we want to hear. Please tell us. If your friend asked you the same question tonight, how would you word it? If your best friend came to you tonight and said, I had a vision from heaven that you knew something about God that you need to tell me. What would you say? In your own words, what does Jesus mean to you? This is a very cool exercise to go do. Actually go write down. What does Jesus mean to you? Why are you a Christian? What does Jesus want you to tell people? Well, that's a pretty cool exercise, but what does Peter say? Because Peter is the one that's invited to say this. So let's hear what Peter says. This is how Peter tells the message that we all should tell. Then Peter began to speak. He opened his mouth. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And how He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with Him. We are witnesses of everything He did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed Him by hanging Him on a cross. But God raised Him from the dead on the third day and caused Him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about Him, that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. That is the message. 
Thank you, Peter. In the NIV language, Peter just has given us a simple way to preach the gospel in seven sentences. Seven sentences. In a nutshell, all you have to do is remember four words. Just four words. They're not in the text, but the first word you've got to remember is this. Jesus. Because it's all about Him. Church, the word church, is a consequence of Jesus. But everything, Jesus was way before the church existed. So when you talk to people about the gospel, you don't start with the word church. You start with the word Jesus. Because it's all about Him. So you center it on that. It's about the man. It's about the Son of God. And if you go read through this, these verses, you will see it pop up over and over again. Who is it about? It's all about Jesus. That's what the proclamation of the gospel is. And so you start then past, present, and future. You know, Jesus, past, present, and future. And if you go read the text again, go do it in your own time. Do the exercise. When Peter reflects to the past, what does he do? Let's look, look back there. What did Jesus preach? He talks about Jesus and what he preached. He preached good news of peace. What did God do with Jesus? He anointed him. What other things did Jesus do? Well, he did good and he healed people. So what type of a person is Jesus? He's a person that does good. He brings peace and he's blessed by the Father who created the heavens and the earth. That is who Jesus is. That is what he did in the past. And what happens then? The text says that uh, in the following verses, if this thing will work, that he was then killed by evil people. That's what happened in the past. But he was raised from the dead. So this good man who does good, who heals people, who brings peace, was killed by evil people, although he was innocent, but he was raised from the dead. And more than 500 people saw him after he was raised from the dead. And they are witnesses of this event. Christianity exists not because of the church or because of the Bible. Christianity exists because of an event. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If he never rose from the dead, Christianity wouldn't exist. This is as simple as it is when you're teaching somebody. You tell somebody, I want to tell you about Jesus, who he was, what he did, what happened to him, and how he was risen from the grave. That's past. Then you're going to the present. And I want to tell you how Jesus Christ has changed my life. I want to tell you what it's meant to me. And Peter is doing that. He says, I witnessed this. I witnessed Jesus myself. People don't care what you tell them about religion or God or anything unless it's been real to you. And that's one of the reasons why we struggle to tell others about Christ. Because for many of us, it's not real. Man, you know what? I cannot imagine my life living without Him. You know, I've seen God change things in my life. I was once lost, but now I'm found. I know what it is to be broken. I've been in the pigsty. And when I came to Christ, everything changed. So yes, my life has changed in the present. I'm standing in front of you as a living witness that Jesus Christ has changed my life. Well, now you put credibility to it by saying, in the present, Jesus is meaningful to me. And look where Peter then goes. And he says, let me tell you this. This guy, Jesus from the past, who works in my life in the present, you know what? God has appointed him that he is going to be the one that's going to judge the living and the dead. He's going to be the ultimate judge of this world. There's going to come a time when you're going to die, my friend and my brother. And you're going to face the God of all the earth for the good and the bad that you've done in this life. And you know in your heart that's true. That you're going to have to be held accountable. Well, he's going to be the judge. This guy I'm telling you about now. He's going to decide whether you get in or whether you get out. That's the future. But I've got good news for you. 
Do you believe in him? Do you believe in him? Do you receive the forgiveness of sins through his name? We can all do this. Sometimes I think we'll just have to let it simmer a bit. We've got to make it personal a bit, you know. But this is what I'm saying. The best way to, to warm up in your spiritual life is to make disciples. Because when you are teaching somebody else this stuff, it forces you to question yourself. Hey, am I really connected with Jesus? Do I really believe that He was resurrected from the grave? Can I really testify as a witness of what He has done in my life? It makes you question yourself deeply. Do I really believe that He's coming back and that He's going to judge me? I cannot preach stuff that I don't believe in myself. So making disciples forces you to do introspection. To ask yourself the question, Hey, where am I at? Verse 44, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Uh, this, I think this was an incredible moment. It's, it's weird. I mean, do you wrap your head around it? I think, I wish I was Peter. Isn't that the most crazy preaching ever? Seven sentences. Boom, the Gentiles start speaking in tongues. Yo. I think the Spirit came on them because as he was preaching, they believed. They believed what he said. This is important. God starts working in people when they believe. When that person switches, and we can't see it. We really can't see it. We don't know what's happening in people's hearts. But they had to see it. Peter had to see it. Peter had to see with his own eyes how heaven accepts Gentiles. He had to see it. Acts 2, remember what happened there? was a unique once-off occurrence, and now it happens again. I believe it's exactly the same thing that happens. Holy Spirit falls upon them. They start speaking in tongues. But the first time, the primary mission was to launch the Christian movement among the Jews, and the primary mission here is to launch the Christian movement among the Gentiles. And God chose the same methodology in both instances. Now, we can, we know we're not going to do it tonight, but we can go into why God does not work the same way today in exactly the same way. We've got to be careful of that. When people say they've been baptized in the Holy Spirit like this, got to be very careful for another day. It was an incredible, transformative message. It was powerful and unique for pagans who have been worshiping the gods of Greece and Italy in all kinds of different ways. For the first time, these pure people found a pure religion that coincided with the morality they have felt in their hearts since a young age. Can you imagine that God has planted a moral code in your heart that you know what's right and wrong, and every religion you go to, they do funny things. Sacrifice a chicken. Go sleep with a prostitute in the temple. And it grates against your spirit, and you're wondering, where's God? Can you imagine what it was like growing up a Roman soldier 
and all you have is Roman gods. And then you meet Peter, and he brings this message of love of this person who died for him on a cross, and all he has to do is believe in his name. It's transformative. It would blow your mind. Sometimes we take for granted the simplicity of the gospel message that we have. Verses 47 to 48. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of these guys being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. You know, we read this and we, we might ask the question, and I think many people ask the question they don't have an answer for, why make such a big fuss about the baptism? You see, being accepted into the Jewish family of God would require a little bit more than just a dip in water. It would require some significant surgery if you were a male, which is uncomfortable. I think these Christians are coming to terms with the simplicity of becoming part of the family of God. Simple baptism. Simple commitment. It was the rite of passage, we could call it. We could call it the contractual signing, the covenantal agreement between yourself and God, the, and the public confession of that, the public association with the name of Jesus Christ, the physical simple symbol of life commitment to Christ. It was extremely significant, but extremely simple, isn't it? And it's interesting that he says, well, clearly these guys can be baptized, so why don't we... Get that done. I didn't really answer the question that I had earlier about how do you receive the Holy Spirit, but I think we have to look at it in just a, a brief answer. It seems like in the Bible there's three ways that you can receive the Holy Spirit, at least to the best of my knowledge, and if you know of another way, please tell me. Like this, the Holy Spirit fell on them like this, and as we see in Acts chapter 2, there's a violent wind or the sound of a wind and there's tongues of fire that fall upon people. I've never seen that in my life. If I see it, I will believe it. I don't believe that happens. I believe these were unique instances as God was launching the Holy Spirit into the world to bring about a message to the ends of the earth. It had to be a miraculous power that came from above. That's one way. A second way that we pick up, I think it's in Acts chapter 19, is through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And only the apostles could do that. And unfortunately, all these guys are, are dead. So that's not a way. But then in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the Bible says pretty clearly, when you get baptized, you believe, well, repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is no other way. You don't just receive it whenever. That's what the text says. And I think this is also extremely important to tell people and make it clear to people. This is why you have to make sure that you get baptized. This is utmost importance because that's when the Bible says you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. No other time. And I believe there's good reason. Because when you make that commitment to God, 
He takes care of your sin. You go into a covenant relationship with Him. So He forgives your sin. Now you're clean. And now God can live in you. He's not going to live in you when you're dirty. Now you're clean. And He can live in you. Anybody know of any other way you can receive the Holy Spirit? According to the Bible. It's about those three ways, right? That I know of. Okay. Final thoughts. Even Jesus tried to preach in the town where he had no honor. Going back to telling your family about Christ. He went back to Nazareth. Remember, we have no honor with our family. Generally, our family don't want to hear us talk about Christ. But Jesus even tried. You can go read that in Luke chapter 4. Unfortunately, the people of the town wanted to kill him. Maybe your sister and brother would want to do the same thing. Mine too, maybe. But we have a responsibility towards the spiritual well-being of our family members. Why not try anew? Number two, it is good to retain a healthy suspicion of your beliefs because it protects you from believing things that are comforting but false. Sometimes we want to believe what we want to believe, but then we end up believing a lie. And all lies eventually lead to hurting us. Number three, God's presence is guaranteed where we are when we do His will. Isn't that comforting and exciting? You can know it for a fact that when you do what He requires of you, He's there. And lastly, if you can't relay the greatest message, sorry, the world has ever heard, if you can't relay that message, crying in a bucket. Who typed this stuff? Goodness, like a spastic. Only three fingers worked. Let me try again. If you can't relay the greatest message the world has ever heard, what does that say about you? Maybe you don't know it. Maybe you don't understand it. Or is too ashamed of it. Or too ashamed to speak up for it. Nevertheless, a few things to think about. Thoughts, comments, questions.